Welcome to episode seven of Notes from Michael White. I'm Peter Kieran, and alongside me, I've got Josh Wagman for uh, for our weekly session of the Notes from Michael White podcast. Lots to talk about, and uh, today is uh, March the the ninth, and today was the release of vSphere up uh, vSphere seven update two and vSAN update two. So we'll we'll have lots to talk about with that, uh, Josh. Anything else that uh, was on the top of your mind for today, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah. Good afternoon. Thanks for. Uh... Having me again. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, discussion points today, uh, not the least of which is uh, the updates to uh, the VMware environment. Um, we've seen, I think, in the last week or so, significant security issues out in the wild. So I wouldn't mind uh, going over them a little bit uh, in a little bit of detail. And um, yeah, just a little bit of odds and ends. And I don't know about you, but I, I do a little bit of physical activity and I'm kind of a data nerd. Um, one of the coolest stories I've seen in the last uh, few days here popped up on uh, Engadget. And I, I enjoy running, I enjoy cycling, but uh, I'm very data driven and I take kind of my, my job with me when I'm, when I'm doing my physical activity. And so I, I've got all the Garmin gear that monitors how quickly I run, how far I run, all the GPS data, the heart rate data. Gatorade actually. <laughs> what was that? Are you into Strava? <laughs> yes, I do do Strava as well. Um, but I saw a cool article about Gatorade. Um, and they're getting into the technology market a little bit. And they've actually made a sweat patch to track perspiration. And this is pretty cool data. So Gatorade's been working, especially with World Junior Hockey, for a considerable amount of time doing uh, a bunch of research with the different international organizations. I know Hockey Canada, I believe Hockey USA is also involved in this, where they'll actually do sweat studies on the athletes before they get into the actual competitive round of, of World Juniors. And they'll actually these sweat studies determine what type of hydration plan, what type of nutrition plan, and what type of substances you need to replace in your body as you're undergoing physical activity. And so now Gatorade is kind of bringing this technology to the masses. And I kind of found it cool because it, it broaches two areas where I'm significantly interested in. I wouldn't, I'm probably going to order something like this and give it a test out. You can actually put the patch on. It will collect perspiration during your physical activity and then read into your iPhone or Android or uh, mobile device and actually tell you what you should be doing for hydration based on the type of activity you're doing. Wow. That's going to be really, uh, I think that'll be a, a really interesting thing. You, you talked about world junior hockey, but you know, for hockey or for any physical activity, hockey, soccer, anything that demands a lot of exertion where you're losing a lot of, a lot of sweat. Uh, my daughter's a hockey goaltender and she probably loses three or four pounds during a hockey game and needs to replenish that in between period. So it's uh, I think that'll be uh, an interesting thing to go forward with. That's for sure. Yeah, and I think what it'll do is it'll bring maybe not elite performance, but it'll bring the benefits of being in an elite performance program to the general masses. So I'm more of a weekend warrior when it comes to running. Uh, I, I'm not extremely fast <laughs> or over, overly athletic, but 
I just enjoy getting out and, and burning some calories and, you know, it, it, it's a great stress relief, but I also enjoy pushing myself. So I think people who kind of fall into that category could see significant benefit in this and, and maybe even see performance benefits that kind of get you excited about carrying on the activity. It's pretty neat stuff. That's fantastic. Well, you know, I'll have to look into that and uh, maybe our listeners might want to look into that. I know a, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, people that I follow on Twitter do a ton in physical activity. And I think that's always interesting. You know, I've, I've I don't run as much as I used to. And since the pandemic, I'm not playing soccer on a regular basis anymore. So I, I'm definitely looking forward to spring where I can get out and uh, get on my mountain bike and golf a little bit too. So I know you golf and you hit the ball a mile. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hopefully this will help the golf game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's dive right into uh, the new announcement today from VMware with uh, the, the vSphere and the vSAN update two release huge release uh, from a vSAN perspective. And I'll dive into a little bit about what, what's on vSAN first, and then we can talk a little bit about, about uh, the vSphere as well. Um, uh, again, a lot of uh, the vSAN um, uh, research and development has really accelerated over the path of, uh, of, of vSphere 7 and vSAN 7. And really a lot, of the, a lot of the feature sets are now rounding out and becoming more and more complete. And what I noticed in this one was, uh, you know, a couple of the biggest features are HCI mesh or disaggregated storage. Um, we're now allowing HCI mesh to basically allow compute clusters uh, that are in the same data center to basically uh, consume vSAN services. So you can now have a vSAN data store connect to a different cluster that isn't running vSAN or isn't even licensed with vSAN and operate off of that uh, storage platform. So if you have uh, extra storage capacity in your vSAN or maybe a little Titan compute, you can now utilize all that extra storage without having to add another node and just add it on another cluster. So some really exciting stuff there. Um, some of the other things that we've done uh, from VMware perspective is enhanced file services. So, you know, our, our initial foray into the file services with both NFS and, uh, and SMB file services were, I would say, um, uh, good enough to get a checkbox, but not uh, feature complete. We're now moving into that feature complete. And, you know, uh, I know Veeam has lots of integrations. They're now going to be able to actually take uh, file system snapshots. Uh, so our backup provider is now going to be reaching and do file system snapshots uh, of our file services, which wasn't available in the previous version. So one of those things that, you know, customers like the file services, but it just didn't have every enterprise feature that was needed. We're starting to really ramp up those features as well. Uh, vSAN over RDMA uh, is, uh, I think, going to be tremendously exciting uh, from a performance perspective. I think we're a little bit in the nascent period on that, but really it's going to provide uh, random, random direct memory access uh, capabilities on the front end. So I think really, you know, if you have that million IOP database that needs absolute zero millisecond latencies, we're, we're going to be able to provide it with vSAN. Uh, the vSphere native key provider services. So uh, fundamentally, if you ever needed to use encryption with vSphere or vSAN in the past, you needed to have an external um, uh, KMS or key management system. 
So now we've provided what I would classify as a good enough uh, key management server so that you can enable encryption without having to go out and, and purchase and configure and, and do whatever you want with your, your key management. Uh, it's, it's good for you know, encryption on vSphere. It's good for encryption on vSAN. It's probably not good for anything else. So there's still a need for key management servers elsewhere. But this, I think, opens up encryption for those edge cases uh, or robo deployment. Uh, two node clusters or, or, uh, or places where uh, you don't necessarily want to build out a full KMS cluster for redundancy in remote uh, locations. So I think that's really exciting. Uh, a couple other things, you know, just from an operational perspective, uh, we're really enhancing uh, the, v, v, um, the vSphere lifecycle manager and the experience that we have with vSphere lifecycle manager and with uh, vSAN particularly. So we're integrating more and more vendors into the, v, uh, the, the LCM infrastructure so that you can basically create a single image for a cluster and apply it. I did it today on my home lab, upgraded vCenter, did three hosts. It took about 45 minutes total and took me a grand total of very little effort to do it. So basically I went into my image, I told it I wanted the new one. I went into my vCenter and I upgraded the vCenter, encountered a small problem there. Um, uh, if you do encounter an error uh, where you are unable to upgrade your, your vCenter because of a um, an error with the pre-checks, please uh, search online, follow me on Twitter. I've got a little bit of a solution for you that I've followed. Basically, you have to remove the update state config file uh, on your vCenter and then uh, basically stage the install, then install it, and then it, then it works. But uh, we've already, uh, William Lamb actually has already submitted a bug report for that particular thing. And then uh, I think we also uh, did a couple of things with Proactive HA, uh, improved our data durability. So, you know, Data durability is that was at the heart of any uh, storage system. We want to make sure your data is resilient and reliable and, and now is available. We've done uh, some significant things under the hood to enhance data durability, especially in the case of a failed uh, component somewhere along the path. And then uh, one last thing is we're doing a whole ton of stuff around uh, our dev-ready infrastructure. So we're now having uh, you know, our, our container storage infrastructure uh, be really easily migrated into a vSAN environment. Uh, we have online persistent volume resizing capabilities. So now uh, if you have a persistent volume that's tied to a container and it's not big enough before you had to basically shut the container down, resize the, the storage container and then turn the container back on, now we can do that dynamically on the fly. Uh, lots of interesting things under the hood uh, uh, alongside, you know, S3 bucket capabilities and, and how we integrate with other vendors like uh, MinIO and Kafka and, and Confluence and, the, and those sorts of things as well. So uh, really exciting release. I highly recommend you read the What's New with, with vSAN Update 2 from John Nicholson, uh, just published today on uh, blogs.vmware.com. And uh, the other thing to note uh, we, we came out and said it today that we crested over the 30,000 customer mark. I think that's huge. Um, even if you looked at where we were when we had vSAN uh, 7.0, we were basically just getting over the 20,000 uh, customer mark. So we've basically increased our market uh, by about 50% in the last year and a bit. So tremendous growth uh, from a customer perspective, uh, very big adoption, and it just shows how robust and reliable the vSAN platform has become.
Well, and, and I'd echo that from a bit of an outsider is that especially over the last uh, year to two years, we've really seen vSAN mature and, and kind of emerge as this enterprise storage play, which it was always intended to be. But it, it takes time to build that up from scratch. Um, so when you're, when you're developing that and continue to basically with every update, bring out significant feature enhancements and, and take the time not only to release them, but to test them to the level you guys do to make sure that uh, not only are they available, but they're pretty bulletproof, especially in the vSAN world by the time they get to production. It's really changed the game as far as what is possible with the VMware hybrid cloud story. Um, especially like uh, you mentioned uh, the encryption keys and different things like that. The capability around vSAN now is, is especially the disaggregated storage. For me, that, that's pretty cool because you're, you're allowing uh, access to that storage from, from outside workloads, basically allowing your users to be more cost-effective across the entire data center, not necessarily uh, bound on a, on a workload by workload basis to whatever's within that cluster resource. And to me, that's a, that's a powerful addition. Well, one of the thing I didn't note uh, was we uh, introduced in an update to some um, AMD Epic uh, uh, processor optimizations. So um, for those of you who know how different the, the underlying architectures between Intel and AMD are, uh, there were some challenges uh, with uh, vSAN on the initial versions of uh, AMD Epic processors that uh, we have now put in a whole ton of optimization just because of how they deal with memory differently than uh, the Intel uh, variants do. So uh, there should be no performance penalty running on AMD. And uh, that's uh, another big path for us to open up to really high core count uh, clusters as well. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, having that capability around the Epic stuff where it's very highly optimized and high performance is, is nice and to make sure it's stable uh, like it needs to be in production environments, obviously very key. Um, another point that you mentioned before to me that just increases the self-sufficiency of the v VMware vSphere deployment is that native key provider. Even though it's probably bound to within kind of the, the VMware hierarchy, it just simplifies having that secure encrypted uh, rollout uh, of cluster information or clusters or or storage on vSAN to make sure that you've got the security you want, but you don't necessarily have to have this, this massive implementation to get it, especially if you're starting from scratch. And, and there's a number of organizations that are, that are still getting into encryption. They haven't necessarily gone whole hog into setting up a dedicated key management service where uh, maybe you're, you're integrating that into all facets of your operation it's becoming more and more important. And we're seeing more and more of it as we move to cloud-based workloads, but having that integrated here uh, definitely simplifies and really makes it easy to dip that toe in the water. Absolutely, 100% on that. And I think anytime we make improvements uh, to any of our products, we, we do do a lot of due diligence. We, we absolutely respect our third-party vendors as well. We don't like stepping on toes of other other 
parts of our ecosystem. But in this case, we're, I think, providing a well-needed service for limited use cases, where if you do need a full key management system with multiple keys across multiple providers, multiple consumers of those keys, by all means, you know, a key management system, you know, from all of your popular vendors, I won't mention them here, but uh, you, you can go and still install that. And we still have full support for that. But the fact that we're putting it in for these smaller edge cases and, and so that we can have customers improve their security posture, I think is, is a, a great value to our customer set out there. Well, we've beaten that uh, to death. Why don't we uh, turn uh, our attention to um, uh, Michael's newsletter from uh, the 6th of March. Lots of good information in there. Anything that stood out to you, Josh? Yeah, there was a, a couple of uh, different articles that um, I found pretty interesting. Um, the one thing I wanted to kind of quickly touch on before we get to that um, was the one thing I saw, especially with the vSphere 7 update too, um, update that I don't know if you mentioned or not, but the confidential vSphere pods on the supervisor cluster with Tanzu. Um, so basically the ability to completely isolate and encrypt, including uh, memory and, and OS level access from uh, on a supervisor cluster in Tanzu. Um, I think this is a very, very cool workload uh, or a very, very cool use case that, uh, especially when you're uh, requiring different things like PCI compliance or, or something along those lines, this could be a, an excellent opportunity to just amp up that security that much more in that uh, container environment. Yeah, and, and really, we you think about uh, you know compliance with various you know NERC or FIPS or anything along those lines. Now you can abstract that all the way down into vSphere pods, and basically it's all about keeping that guest OS memory encrypted and protected against access from the hypervisor or or from something else that's nefarious that may have gotten its way into like the supervisor cluster or 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 anything along those lines. So it's nice that you can uh, basically now encrypt. Uh, at a very low level, those those pods, and I think that's um, something that we're continuing to uh, to evolve over time. But it's definitely a, a, an exceptional security enhancement. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, a couple other things that really stood out to me on the vSphere side of that up upgrade is um, that you can now actually do a CLI deployment of a vCenter server. So uh, for those of you who have deployed vCenter servers, it's always been a, a GUI-based process. Um, now you can actually do it with a, a JSON template. You can actually bootstrap a vCenter cluster and enable it with Lifecycle Manager uh, to actually build out your cluster with the same image while deploying a vCenter server on that ESXi host. I think that's going to be tremendous from an automation perspective where you might ship out stuff out to a remote site and then be able to actually build up a, an entire uh, vCenter slash cluster environment uh, in an automated fashion and repeatable fashion. So, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, um, uh, isolated sites or anything along those lines, I think that's going to be a real interesting development for us. Um, yeah, one of the other thing uh, that I noticed in here, we're, we're doing a lot of lifecycle manager uh, upgrades. Uh, so, you know, whether it's either with a baseline uh, methodology, which is kind of the old legacy VMware update manager way to do it, but also with our, the way that we're doing um, 
the, the way that we're doing uh, lifecycle management with images as well. Uh, we now have uh, the ability to scale lifecycle manager to have uh, ESX hosts and clusters up to 400 supported ESXi hosts managed by a lifecycle manager before it was 280. So we're starting to really ramp up the capabilities for large, uh, large uh, implementations so that you can now create a whole bunch of uh, management zones and, and whatnot under the lifecycle manager. Uh, it just, it, it keeps getting better and better on there. And then uh, the other thing is uh, from a vSAN perspective, we can actually um, use lifecycle manager to put uh, the, the changes that might be going on into memory. Uh, so uh, it makes a really fast exit into maintenance mode and all the rest of it, and then do our quick boots. All of those sorts of things are going to be uh, to uh, to do a whole bunch of things. So we can now suspend virtual machines to memory instead of migrating them, powering them off, or suspending them to disk. Lots of interesting things on how to do faster upgrades, and it's all about speed of of getting through that large cluster, right? So lots of interesting stuff on that side. Anything else that uh, tickled your fancy on on uh, on on this update release? I mean, it's brand new, so a lot of this is uh, brand new for us, brand new for our customers. No, I think the lifecycle management stuff's obviously there, and and there's continued development around the Tanzu platform, and um, so for me, that's kind of where I'm going to be focusing my energy as far as lab work goes, is is kind of the container world, and um, so. I, that's kind of what I took away from it. But uh, going back to Michael White's newsletter, one of the one of the articles I, I saw that he linked that I found quite interesting was by Kit Colbert. Um, and, and it has to do with VMware's approach to multi-cloud. And um, kind of a, an interesting take on, on the hybrid cloud and what, uh, a good philosophy or, or, or what a good, I guess, process would be to get to cloud infrastructure. It's kind of the classic arc or uh, argument. Is it, is it more um, appealing to lift and shift? Like you just forklift everything into the cloud and migrate. You start um, kind of taking into account your uh, refactoring for cloud before you get there. Uh, what makes more sense? And he goes in to mention that uh, leveraging multi-cloud or hybrid cloud environments with the VMware platform helps you kind of do both. It takes, uh, makes it a more efficient movement uh, into cloud environments uh, because of the fact you don't necessarily have to refactor everything, but you can leverage the same type of architectures you traditionally used on premises. And so, you can be cost effective by going to the cloud and at the same time refactor on your own time um, at, at your own pace and, and provide some flexibility in how to get there and, and also leveraging multiple clouds. Yeah. Well, one thing that struck out to me on that article is uh, he mentioned something called economies of scope. And, and, you know, everybody understands what economies of scale is, but economies of scope really is talking about the breadth of the offering. And you know, if you think about, um, well, let's say we only provided access to AWS and not Azure, well, that that limits our scope. Well, we we want to make sure that we can help our customers build and manage applications across diverse clouds and environments. And we know that, you know, 
nine times out of 10, you can't fit everything into the same place, you know, because you might have a feature set that is only available in Google. So we want to make sure that we uh, invest in supporting that and make sure that we can help uh, our customer basically shield itself from higher operating costs from, from, from the CFO or the CIO point of view. So we might want to make sure that from an, uh, an economy of scope, we want to make sure the right infrastructure capabilities and, and tool sets can help you reduce costs across those, those multi-cloud environments, right? So uh, it's something I talk about a lot in my day job and, uh, and I find it's, uh, I'm going to definitely steal the economies of scope because I think, it, you know, it, it all boils down to, um, I always talk about uh, um, three things with my customers, right? What, what's important for a business? What's the business value? And th those three things really boil down to is how can I increase revenue? you know, or get something to market faster? How can I reduce costs? And how can I reduce risk? Those are the three levers of any business, right? And it, typically, if you're a CFO, and you want to fund something, if they strike all three of those, you, you, you write the check right away. If you get two, you, you pretty much are guaranteed to get the check. If you only have one of those, you're probably not going to get a check unless, you know, there's a really big return on that investment. So you want to make sure that you're selling across that economy of scope for the, for the CIO, CFO level so that they know that there's cost efficiency, savings, OPEX, CAPEX, all of that sort of stuff has to be driven from a, from, from a vision perspective when, when those solutions get proposed. Because, you know, why do people go to the cloud? Well, they, they were afraid of, afraid of Mordak, the information preventer initially, right? So you had shadow IT pop up because it was faster and quicker and easier for a developer to get what he needed, you know, in Amazon or Azure. So he just went out, put a credit card down and did it. But there's lots of things that they might not have realized that they need. They need enterprise services. They need a security posture. They need to have auditing capabilities. They need to make sure that they have performance management. All those sorts of things that an IT department can provide for them that, that they haven't necessarily thought of as the developer. They just want to get their app developed and get it out and, and dust their hands off and say, here's your app business, go start using it. So we want to help drive, I think, faster delivery but also simplify the operations because, you know, it's, uh, I always said there used to be, you know, a compute network and storage team, and now there's a AWS, Azure, and Google team, right? So <laughs> you want to break down those silos as much as you can, as opposed to building new silos. So. Well, that's very true. And the, and the point I take out, uh, like, I like your uh, economies of scope point, and you said it kind of towards the end there. For me, it's consistent operations. I I tend to be, uh, being a systems engineer, I tend to interface with a lot of different customers on a lot of different types of projects. And what I'm seeing, some days I'm, I'm working in a, a VMware environment. Some days I'm working in a Hyper-V environment. Sometimes I'm working uh, within an Azure environment. And some days it's, it's an AWS. Well, there's natively, there's, there's not a lot of consistency there in, in how operations are done, which is why we're seeing a lot of adoption of container workloads. But I think the consistency that you guys are providing throughout the entire stack, no matter where that data lives, you can manage it with the same tools. It makes a huge difference because there's such a massive learning curve for each of these different clouds. AWS is completely different than Azure from a functional standpoint and getting things up and running. At, at its heart, there's, there's a lot of similarities between the two, but functionally, 
if you're trying to operate in both of these environments, they're extremely different. Um, and, and one does not translate one for one to the other. And so the consistency in operations for me, especially from a, a resourcing standpoint, um, it's interesting to learn those native tools for sure. But when it comes time to getting something done quickly and cost effectively, it's, it's not always the, um, the easiest thing to have five different management tools. And one thing I noted, uh, I, I spoke with a, CIO, or a CIO in Denver on a, on a on solutions architecture course uh, several years ago. And the one thing he noted was when he goes in to talk to the business leaders, they want speed of execution over everything else. If you can accelerate the time to market because you don't have to teach something or learn something new and you can just get it up and running quickly, that trumps a lot of other things in, in the business's mind because they want to have velocity in their business because if they can get something up and running quicker, they can start their ROI faster. And, and that really stuck out to me is how can you help that customer be, um, you know, uh, basically increase their velocity. <laughs> and I think that's where, if, if you're talking at the higher levels of business, that's where they get really excited. You know, there's only so much that you can cut to save costs before it becomes a, a negative drag on the business. Uh, but if you can increase velocity and increase uh, your, your revenue because you've got something to market quicker and increase your ROI, decrease the time to your ROI, uh, th those factors mean a tremendous amount to business leaders. And I think that's something that uh, as IT professionals, we, we often forget that the business, <laughs> the business value drives IT a lot of the time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another article I, I kind of got uh, quite taken with is um, trying to, Dean Lewis um, had a, a great article on, and it's kind of a step-by-step -step, on installing and configuring Kasten by Veeam to protect container workloads on VMware Tanzu Kubernetes grid. Um, obviously we're seeing the shift to uh, containerized workloads. Well, it's still important, especially when there's uh, persistent data, even if there's not, you still have to protect the information that you've got within that grid or within that Kubernetes environment. And this is a great step-by-step -step guide, uh, walking you through all the code lines needed and, and all that good stuff to be able to deploy Kasten's uh, application level protection uh, within that Tanzu environment. So um, anyone looking or using Tanzu right now to kind of uh, expand their knowledge in, in containers or, or validating for use in production, I definitely recommend giving this article a read because it's very important before you get that into production to have a look and determine whether or not, number one, that data needs to be protected. And if so, how are we gonna do that? Um, how can we make that data so we can recover it in other locations as well? So with the custom platform, it can be portable. Uh, you can restore to uh, external environments if for some reason you have a data center loss or something along those lines. So it's, it's a great article in, in getting the first steps of that protected scenario down. Well, and, and I think it brings up an important part, you know, 
containers are a, a bit ephemeral, uh, meaning, you know, I was like the pets versus cattle, right? They're more like cattle and, and in fact that they're replaceable, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't want to protect them. So, uh, you know, just because you have cattle, you, you don't let them wander around without a fence, right? So you definitely do want to still protect protect what you've got and all the rest of that. So I think that's really interesting as well. Absolutely. How about yourself? Anything that stood out? You know what? Um, the 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 article about uh, the iPhone 12 and the lidar image scanner. I I saw that and I just. I had to download that Canvas Pocket 3D room scanner and try it out. And wow, <laughs> you know, it's you feel like you. One of the things it said, you know, you kind of it's like standing in a Star Trek holodeck. Well, it's really it's really getting there. It, it basically measures the walls, it measures the ceiling height, it, it puts your windows in the right places, and, and will give you all the full measurements, right? So I can see a lot of applications for for this, you know, for, from a business perspective for estimators and, and, hey, you know, I need new shades for my window. Can you give me the, uh, the measurements? Oh, sure, let me just uh, do a LIDAR scan and I'll tell you, right? And now it's exactly perfect as opposed to, you know, oh, the, the measuring tape moved a little bit, right? So I think there's going to be a, a ton of new stuff that gets uh, done with that whole LIDAR uh, capability on the iPhones. But, you know, you can bet that other phone manufacturers are going to have that capability going forward as well. And, you know, I, I initially saw it as a great thing for that autofocus uh, to make the autofocus super fast, right? So, you know, basically it that that was its main purpose and that's why i liked it is the autofocus on the on the iphone is is spectacularly fast and you know even faster than you know my several thousand dollar dslr so absolutely pretty cool technology and um you're starting to see mo especially with the mobiles that that functionality is coming really across the spectrum as well i know uh, samsung had a significant release with the uh, i believe it was the 21 um that has, again, extremely powerful uh, photographic capabilities. And, and really, it's so neat to see that technology kind of shrunk down and, and put into the mobile market. But um, I think development's only going to continue in that area. But yeah, the practical application of it's pretty cool. I, I don't have the 12 yet, so I can't test it out. But uh, I'm looking forward to Well, I, I, I've got the 12. Uh... Pro Max, and I tell you, it's uh, the photography on that is it's incredible. So, been really happy with mine so far. Anything else that you have before we uh, we tidy this off today? Um, not necessarily related to uh, Michael's blog or anything, but I just wanted to uh, I think address the elephant in the IT room these days, and that's the uh, um, Krebs on security report about. Uh, at least 30,000 organizations across the US um, being victim to a, an exchange exploit. Um, this is on-prem exchange server. There were four, four newly discovered flaws that have been exploited uh, by the, uh, I think they're called the Hafnium Group uh, based out of China um, using actual virtual private servers from the US to carry out these exploits. Um, it, it's just a classic example of uh, you've got to make sure that as soon as patches are released, you've got to be getting them into uh, a testing scenario. Obviously, this, some of the exploits were released early enough that I think that uh, 
during the window that Microsoft was developing the actual patches for them, a lot of the exploits were already done. Um, but they're saying in some instances, the only way to recover from this is potentially to rebuild your exchange environment. Um, this can be massively impactful. Um, but if you operate an on-prem exchange environment, you must go out and th there's great information uh, that you can find on stepping through testing, whether or not you've got uh, the exploits uh, present on your machines. Um, and basically then you can go through the remediation process on there. But um, it there's a, a blog on Microsoft also ca calling this possibly state sponsored. Um, Kind of exploits, which yeah. is in, unless there's money involved in ransomware, you know, I would bet money that it's a state sponsored activity versus just hackers having fun these days. You know, that's Pete's opinion, not based in any fact, but that's just, uh, you know, my feeling on it. Yeah, and that's, I'm with you. You know, I, I think there's um, the, the, the next war is all going to be digital, right? Because information is power and and we have a ton of information on our daily lives that, that are all now uh, floating around in the internet. And, uh, you know, state-sponsored state actors will find value in that data more, more often than the average hacker who might be mining for specific bank account records or something along those lines, or, you know, a QNAP. <laughs> you know, as we saw, in, uh, there, there's a, a QNAP vulnerability as well. Uh, if you do have a QNAP or a Synology, you know, a Synology I encourage you to uh, turn on the, the auto update feature just so that you don't have to worry about that because, you know, NAS is just sit there and do stuff uh, from a home perspective. Uh, it's And typically don't have as much administrative burden. So we, we're not in and around their, their, uh, their admin consoles all the time. So we might miss updates. And so, you know, on my home NAS, I, I definitely have the auto updates turned on just so that I don't have to worry about security uh, concerns as much. I still do worry about it, but I, I want to make sure that I'm covered as, as easily as possible. Yeah. And with the QNAP stuff, obviously they're being hacked to mine cryptocurrency. So um, that can affect you in multiple ways, especially considering uh, many QNAP devices are home lab users. And that's why we mentioned it here is um, I'm sure we've all owned something like that, or maybe even that brand before. Um, but it's definitely not something you want to forget about. Uh, as Pete mentioned, stay on top of that. Make sure it's it's fully patched. I know I've got to go through my Windows patch cycle here in my lab probably today or tomorrow and, and make sure everything's up to date. But um, yeah, no, I mean, it's the only way you can stay truly safe these days is to make sure those uh, patches are rolled out as soon as humanly possible. Excellent. Well, if we don't have anything else, we can wrap it up. Any last minute uh, tidbits? No, I think uh, there's a couple other good articles we can save for, for next time. They're not going anywhere, but um, no, all, all good here. Uh, hoping Michael's feeling well and uh, yeah, have a good yeah, day. I actually, I actually saw Michael this weekend. I dropped off some Lego for him. So he has some small Legos. He's still working on his big, massive treehouse and uh, and a Saturn rocket project. And uh, he's, uh, he's doing fairly well. Uh, it looks like he's looking at moving.
uh, uh, fairly soon. So we'll look forward to having him on the show as, as, he, as his health permits. And hopefully we wish him all the best and all the best uh, health that he can. With, yeah, that, we'll wrap up ep- with that, we'll wrap up episode seven and we'll look forward to talking to you all next week. Thank you.